If you take that responsibility to be a, an excellent parent and raise excellent kids, you've got to integrate your own life experience. You've got to make sense of your own life experience. As hard as that may be, that may mean therapy, that may mean a coach, that may mean just reading, whatever it is. You've got to integrate that experience in order to not leave that shit in your kid. Welcome to The Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soulfire production. Today on the show, we've got Connor Moore with us. Now, Connor is the creative director and co-founder of Soulfire Productions. He's a podcaster as well as a coach. And him and I first got connected approximately six years ago while at the Onnit Gym in Austin, Texas. We were connected by the Mind Pump guys and almost immediately we jived. We trained together, we recorded a show together. And since then, we've been to places like Costa Rica together and we've just developed a close friendship. Now, one of the things that I appreciate so much about Connor is he is an incredibly, well, one, intelligent person. He's hilarious. He also calls it like he sees it, which is very rare in this world, unfortunately. And I always appreciate his outlook on life and just how he shows up from a very real and also heart-centered place. Now, in today's show, we go over the topic of fatherhood and we discuss some of the challenges and realities that him and his wife, Kelly Moore, faced when they were going through IVF. We also talk about what it's like as new fathers to step into maybe the identity of a protector and also on the flip side, how having a child has softened us in some ways. We go into some of the skills that Connor feels are absolutely critical for children in this world to learn as they grow up, teamwork and parenting, how to integrate past parts of ourselves so that we can show up more capable and more full for the children that we are raising in this world. I know you're going to love today's show, so let's dive right in. Luca's three months old, four months old? No, he's... uh... This Sunday, I think he just was five and a half months. Okay. So we're just barely ahead of you guys then. So it's all kind of... Is Roe six or six and a half, seven months? No, she's five, a little more over five. Like she's five and, five and a half, I think. Maybe it's longer. I don't know, man. Maybe I'm <laughs> fucking it up. Maybe because I get so confused between what constitutes a month and then the weeks and that sort of stuff. And so... Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she's a, she's a baby. I don't know. She's, she's also like 14 sometimes. I'm like, I don't know what this child is even doing. Like they're, they're, she's so advanced in a weird way. And I feel like such a dick saying that. Cause I'm like, I have like an advanced child, but it's just objective. She's objectively advanced. Like she just does things that like she was doing things at three months old that three months old aren't supposed to do. And it's like, well, that is what it is. I mean, Kelly was probably like that too. I mean, I'm, I'm lagging behind currently. So I don't think that I was advanced <laughs> as a child. You know what I mean? Like I need a little help. Like I have like a fourth grade reading level. Like I think, you know, like I think Roe might teach me how to read by the time she's like seven. We'll see. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> All so I know good. Is, that, is that when she goes to history class and she learns about JFK, she's going to be asking a lot of questions that are going to make the teacher very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, so what's the role of CIA in this? <laughs> what oh, God. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, dude, even, I mean, advanced or not, 
the level or the rate at development in a child's life, especially at that old, that's like the remarkable thing. Like a day will pass and then all of a sudden this whole new either, like you're saying, a tone in their voice or they'll be rolling over the next day. So it's like these massive changes that, you know, I forget what it is, but like within the certain amount of weeks of a child, like the first eight weeks or from this week to this week, it's like they will experience the most monumental growth that they will experience in their whole life. So advanced or not, they are fucking changing at light speed. And it's and it's funny because it'll be the same for a week. And then over over the weekend, it'll be a, diff- a different child. Like by, on Friday, you have one kid, then you have Saturday, Sunday. And then Monday, it's like, this kid's <laughs> different now. It's so crazy. And it's so fun to watch because you're like, they'll, it's like they're trying things out and they'll kind of figure something out and move on to the next thing. And they just got it down. You know, like she was, went from like, oh, it's so cute. She's trying to put her passy back in. So then I swear to God, 48 hours later, she was like, I was holding her and she like nonchalantly just grabs her passy and drop, drops it in her mouth. I was like, <laughs> how did you, like, she was like poking herself in the eye with it like two days ago. <laughs> and now she's just like, she'll just put it in her mouth. She'll hold on to it and just chew it. Like she'll just chew on the end of it. I'm like, you're just, you're crazy, man. She's a crazy, and that, the amount of hair she has is also just insane to me. And I hope our next one does too, because it's so fun. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, one of the things that I don't think you and I have ever chatted about, and I'd love to start the conversation in kind of this direction, but you know, uh, Dr. Nathan Riley, who's the holistic OBGYN, is, is a dear friend of ours and supported us during our birth of Luca. And with that said, just my friendship with him and then the conversation and where my interests are right now is so much in the fatherhood and, and this type of realm. And I just wasn't really, my awareness wasn't tuned to it before, but the amount of challenges that couples face in getting pregnant is now so much more apparent to me than it ever was. And we, you and I, I don't think I've talked about this before, but I know that you guys did IVF. And so if you would be open to sharing just even a little bit about your journey and, and why did you select that and what challenges or things came up in your guys's uh, bringing Roe into this world, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, man. Uh, it's really interesting. I kind of start with myself when I found out, because I'm the reason that we had to, do, had to do IVF. Kelly is like super fertile, ready to go, birthing <laughs> hips, whole thing. Birthing um, I find, I think I was 25 or 26 and I'd always kind of known something was going on. And the way I kind of jokingly say this is I just like, I've always blown sp- small loads. Like I just knew <laughs> that I blew small loads. I'm like, this is something's going on here. Um, so about 25 or 26, when I had insurance, I was like, I'm going to go to the uh, I'm going to go get this checked out. So I went and did the whole thing where you like get off in a cup and then analyze it. And it was like 0.0. Like you got mm. nothing. Like nothing's coming out. So then I went to a urologist. Turned out to be a really great guy. Um, he's out in Austin. And he was really cool. And he, um, you know, he checked me out. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm not feeling any vast deferens in a physical exam. So I ended up going to do an ultrasound where they just kind of uh, drop an ultrasound up your keister, which is a really interesting experience. And got to see like where vast deferens are supposed to be and that I didn't have them. So essentially for whatever reason, it was like I was born with a vasectomy. So vast deferens are what carry sperm to your urethra. Now that doesn't mean you don't have any ejaculate because there's a lot of other fluid that mixes with that in from different parts of the body. So I found that out. And the great thing was, and that had someone to talk to because my urologist actually had the same issue. And it's only, I think, one or 2% of men who have fertility issues have that issue. And the thing is, and, and for guys out there that are struggling with this or curious about that, if you have a plumbing issue, that's what they call that, right? Like a pipe's basically not there. That's mm-hmm. okay. 
you can usually figure that out. If everything is intact and you're still having problems, that's where it gets to be like, okay, you may not be capable of having kids. I was producing sperm. It just was, it had nowhere to go. And so, you know, fast forward, Kelly and I meet, we do the whole thing. We know we're going to have kids. We, even before we got married, started like discussing what the options were and looking into it and doing some research. And, um, it really was, you know, she was so given that, like, I would love to have had kids naturally. Uh, that would have been great. I would, I've always wanted to be a dad since I was young. So it was really hard for me when I figured that out. And then I went through this whole process of kind of becoming okay with not having kids because it's not cheap. You know, I think the cost to do that was around $50,000, right? And it's not, it's not a small ordeal from the beginning to end. Now, if we do it again, it's going to be a little bit less because we've done a lot of the work on the front end as far as like getting embryos and all that kind of stuff. So we go ahead and do it. We found a really great place here in uh, over in Denver, just down the road. So we, we, it was a long process, man. And like, it's funny because I'll say what I had to do go through was having a needle inserted into my sack, essentially to like, it's a hollow needle that basically thread in and out to pull sperm out of that. They put it under a microscope. They pull the best ones out and they used, and they have to harvest embryo from Kelly and they'd make a handful of, or they uh, take the egg from Kelly and they make a handful of embryos. What Kelly had to go through and what our relationship had to go through before that was awful. Like mm. I do not envy her. She had to go through and it's, it, it, I hated it because it was my, I feel like it was like my fault, even though it's not my fault, but it was like, I'm the one that can't. I felt like I was the reason we had to do this. And she had to go through months of just IVF hormones, all these things. And she was all over the place. And it was just, you know, she was a crazy person. She'll tell you that. And it's not, it was no fault of her home, her own because your hormones kind of dictate your behavior in many ways. If you understand the human endocrine system and the way that interacts with your neurology, it's, it was just, it's, is what it is. She, we've talked about this on the podcast on okay, babe several times. And that was really hard on us. Like it was really tough. And so, you know, you think like this IVF process, it's not, it's not a walk in the park. Like there is so much that goes into it. Now, was it all worth it? And would I do it again? And would she do it again to have what we have with Roe? Like 1000%. But it was just, even the, the pregnancy was really hard. There was just a lot going on and there's some more complications that can happen with IVF and you just never know. And it's kind of impersonal. It's a very weird experience. Um, you know, wish I didn't have to do it, but I'm really grateful that it was there because, you know, if it was, you know, a hundred years ago, we would just have been trying and trying and not known what was going on. Could I pause you real quick, Connor? Yeah. So back to what you said about when you were going through it and, and she was, you know, on these, whatever, these hormones and stuff like that. And things were, were swaying up and down in that time. Was there anything, uh, how did you guys navigate that as a, in, as a couple or what did you find helpful or what was, what was that like, uh, when you guys are, are in it, in the thick of it? I wish I could tell you there was some kind of like strategy. I mean, we handled it reasonably well. It was just like holding on for dear life. Really? Mm. It was so, cause it was, the thing is, it's like, you just didn't know what to expect next. And I'm pretty comfortable with, you know, chaos and things changing and different stuff. But in that situation, like I'm trying to prepare myself to have a kid. Right. So that's already kind of, I'm kind of freaking out about that in my own life. And then she's in the same place, but she's also emotionally completely unstable because of these IVF hormones. And so it was, we, we handled, I would say we handled it decent, but even that was, feels like we did a really bad job <laughs> like looking back on it. It was just so hard. Like there was just no way to, cause one day, and that was the thing with, if you think about like 
really intense PMS. A lot of people have had something like that. It was that to the to to turned up to eleven for four months, right? And then we did that's that's for the extraction piece to get the eggs out, and then you got to go through the process again two months later for the implant. So it was, if you just do one or the other, right? Say you have the extraction and you take a year and then do the implant later, but we did it all over that, you know, eight to 10 months. And that was the first year of us being married. <laughs> so it was wow. just like the first year of, of marriage was just a, a, an emotional kind of roller coaster for everybody involved. And, you know, I'm on the receiving end of that again, wish I could have traded places with her because I just felt so terrible about this whole deal. And now it's all, worth it. But like, yeah, there was not, I, I wish I could say there was strategies and stuff, but it was just kind of like, it was, it was again, like riding a, riding a bull, dude, you just, just holding on for dear life and trying to just roll with the punches. And it was, it, and I think the biggest thing was that I wish we would have had is somebody to prepare us for that. You know, like no one told us like, Hey, you're going to be like kind of a crazy person and that's okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's okay. Prepare for that. Because for a while I just wasn't really sure how to handle it. Cause I didn't, I had no preparation for that. So by the, by the implant time and it came a bit more real, I think we were a little bit more kind of used to it and had a, a, a kind of a acclimated to it and just were able to be like, I could, I could sit there and at that point be like, Hey, calm down. I know you don't tell women that very often. Like don't, you know, but like in a, in a loving <laughs> way, like, Hey, take a breath. This is the hormones. You're, you're geeking right now on this stuff. That's totally fine. Give her a hug. That's all I could really do. And that might calm things down for a little while. And then a few hours later, it just, it was little things. And it was the best thing to do is just kind of be patient. And because I, I would take it personally at first, because I didn't know what was really going on. And then after time, it kind of became, there was a little bit more space there. But even then it was, you know, it was, if you were to watch it from the outside, you would have thought it was just a completely dysfunctional, crazy relationship. If you didn't know all the details that were going on, because it was, it was really wild. Damn, man. I didn't know that. Uh, so would you say then going into the next one, when that time comes, it would basically just be that exact thing, just being mentally prepared. And I I think us being just prepared for it, just having that be like, okay, we know what's going on. We know what we're getting ourselves into now. We can kind of have like what you're talking about, like strategies for dealing with it. We were just, you know, deer in the headlights with this thing on the first time around 1000%. And we also know, because at the time it was so obscure, like we have, we have row now, like we have, we know what we're doing this for. Like we know exactly what, like why we're doing it again. We're doing it one more time and hopefully it takes the first time we don't have to go through it again. Cause if you hear about these women that have done IVF six, seven times, right? Tried and failed. What does that mean? Done it six, seven times. They've, they've done what part of that process? So they've done the extraction at least once, right? Okay. You can get, you know, a handful of them. You maybe get three embryos, maybe you get 12. You just never know, right? What'll work. And then they've done through, gone through that same implant process I was just telling you about. So a couple months of hormones and the implant process and didn't happen or they had a miscarriage or something happened. So they've done this. And this, I have a friend of mine, actually, I met out, um, out hunting and it took him and his wife seven years of IVF and they finally had their baby right before we did. You know, so it was like, and I was like, oh man, that's crazy. That's a long time. And then I'm like, dude, you went through that roller coaster seven times like once a year for seven years. So a quarter of your year, at least on top of the fact that you, you know, I can't imagine what that feels like to feel like you failed and gone through all of that. When you hear that, you think, yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a long time, but you don't think about all the other stuff that goes into it. And the context on that for me is completely shifted. Wow. If for example, it didn't take when it, when I guess whatever, when the egg took or what, however you want to say it, 
would you guys have continued to try or were you open to other options? I don't know, maybe adoption or how, how set were you on this plan or whatever, this direction? We discussed other options. We did know. I mean, we, we were pretty confident that Kelly was going to be able to just like get pregnant, you know, okay. especially with the hormonal help. Um, we discussed and we still discuss adoption and different things. I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into going forward and we'll see where we're at. We didn't want to do any kind of adoption when we had someone, a, a baby baby, but um, it's still something we talk about. But I think, you know, given how, how well it worked the first time, even though it was really hard, it's not something we're really like focused on too much, but it was, if it didn't work, I think we would have gone that route. But then again, you know, we were going to keep trying, you know, and I think both of us had a, were pretty de- determined to make this work at least for one kid. And I think if we only had Roe, if we only had our one kid, we're totally happy with that. Like, it's not like we have to have two or we feel like a failure. Like we're, I'm happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes I'm like, I can't believe we're going to have another one of these and a, t- and a two-year-old <laughs> running around at the same time. Like that's oh my, like, my friends that are doing that right now. I'm like, uh, this seems insane, <laughs> but you just acclimate to it, you know? And it's so fun. It's so great as we, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, I think we were pretty determined, but we also didn't want to like have a defeatist attitude going in. It was like all, this is going to work. We got this. Like it was just good vibes all the time, you know? And that also helped get us through. Cause if you have this like backup plan, you make, you start thinking like, well, especially when it's really hard, like, well, that's easier. We could do that. It's like, well, Let's just focus on this thing right now. Damn, there's so much that I had this vision that came to me right when you were saying that of me, you and Kelly in Costa Rica when we were taking people down for to, to Salterra for that ayahuasca uh, retreat. And it's just, I just had this straight vision when we were all checking in on each other. We were in our room. Kelly was on, hanging out with you on the bed and then we're all just chatting about, you know, just what went down and to see where we are now and our, our, our children and stuff like that. What really came up was just, uh, and obviously I only know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. However, knowing you guys as friends and then going back way back when those are the early, early days when you and Kelly got together, just to acknowledge like the commitment and perseverance that you guys have had this entire time to being committed in a relationship, to working on yourselves individually, to amidst all of these challenges that even, again, even knowing you, like all I knew really was you guys did IVF, but I was never really aware of even what what you've shared right now. And the commitment to uh, want to do this, I think speaks volumes. And uh, I think it's so cool that and whatever you want to say, divine, whatever that you had, or did you choose, oh, actually backstep, did you choose to have a girl or was it a surprise or how did that work? It was a surprise. Now they know the gender. We didn't know the gender. We just picked the healthiest ones. They actually give these kids like a, a, a credit rating. <laughs> like if they have like, what? They have like certain different aspects of which, how they like grade the health of the embryo. Um, so there was one that was like, you know, five stars, the best one. We just picked that one. I mean, there were all, there was like, there's five really healthy ones, but she was like the, she was the winner. She was and the then, NCAA champion. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just recently found out that of the, of the five, I think we had six good ones or five good ones. I don't know. We have three boys in the next, in the crew. So she was actually, I think it was three boys and two girls. So it was actually, she was, you know, it was the odds were stacked against a girl, but the next one, next one we will choose because you do want to have a boy. And the next one, and it was number one was row. And the number two was a boy. So the next one, you know, we would have probably, you always want to pick the healthiest one. And they have like, a ton of metrics they choose those things. It's really actually wild how much science that goes into this stuff. Like I said, it's it's kind of impersonal, but it's also kind of fascinating. 
Oh, it's, it's so fucking fascinating, dude. I, and I, I wanted a girl so bad. Like I was really, and I didn't even, so I, when I caught Roe, and like, I just gave her to Kelly. I didn't even know. I didn't even look at it. I saw her butt. You know, I just like caught her, handed her to Kelly. And then Kelly did her, you know, she's just like, we're all just crying, of course. And then she didn't. And she, they go, do you want to know the gender? And I picked her up and just looked at Kelly. And she was like, it's a girl, isn't it? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I don't know why I wanted a girl so bad, but I was really excited. I mean, I would have been happy regardless, but I really wanted a girl first for some reason. Well, share, share a bit uh, about, because uh, I mean, I know you very closely and you've got uh, maybe on the external, people have seen a bunch of your stuff. Like, I mean, you're incredibly intelligent, not afraid of conflict. Fucking you'll get in someone's face <laughs> like, a war, like a warrior of the truth. And you have like one of the softest hearts for people who know you and you're the sweetest motherfucker and you'll throw down big time in the gym. That's how me and you first connected way back years ago. So speak to what it's like been for you uh, and especially to uh, like how it's maybe softened you. If, if that's a right way to, to say, like what is having a girl done for you, changed you, impacted you? Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious how it's going to be different with a boy next time around because Ro just turns me into, she's like, I uh, just turns me into like a puddle. Like I'm so soft with her. Yeah. You know, I know I'm like, I play, I'm, I don't baby talk her that much. Like I have definitely a voice I talk to her with, you know, but it's like, it's, I use real words and we, you know, have like, I talk, talk to her, but it opened, I, I, we talked about this a little bit beforehand to give you, I'm trying to like remember how, how I phrased this, but it's like the capacity for softness just like went the, the scale. I was already had that in me in some certain ways in certain contexts. It was very reserved, but with her, like there is a level of like, softness and caring and also a on the other end of that like a level of fierce protectionism both mm-hmm. of those things kind of got unlocked at the same time it's like the scale used to be you know inside of a certain range and it just broke out on both ends right where it's like this i will do anything to protect this child to you know to unspeakable to an unspeakable degree and then when i'm with her it's like i am have the capacity for a type of softness that I didn't even know existed inside of myself. It's really, it's been really interesting to see that kind of shake out in my own life and kind of observe that because where my mind goes like with her and I'm with her, you know, I think we have a similar pattern where it's like most mornings are my time with Roe and we like hang out or doing things. And when she's like looking at me and laughing at me and sticking her tongue out, it's just like, I just, I'm just, I'm just, it's like I'm warm. It's just like, it's everything. It's, everything to me, you know? And when I think about her growing up and getting older and like what she might face, it's just like, I turned into a full, like a fierce dad. <laughs> it's just so crazy, man. It's like, and I just didn't, you don't, you don't know until you're there. Like there's no, no, I couldn't even, I, somebody who doesn't have children, I couldn't explain that to them. Right. It doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like explaining an ayahuasca experience to somebody but you can kind of give somebody a vague outline of what you kind of are feeling or experienced, but you don't know until you've done it, you know? And so for me, it's been, it's been really nice to actually, and that's actually come through with Kelly too. And with my family, like people that I'm close to, because as people that know me like publicly, like I am kind of a dick, right? Like, and I know that, and I kind of lean into that and it's fun for me. It's like a, I'm a playful dick, but I am (laughs) in this 
And I'm sure that like Rose is going to get some of those like snarky. She's going to be a smart ass. Like I just, she can't not be as my child. Like it just is what it is. Um, now some of that's my defense mechanism. So I don't know where that'll come, you know, come out with her. But yeah, it's been really interesting to see like that part of myself. Just, I think it was also a part of myself that I didn't think I needed until I had her. And then it's like, oh, you, you need this part of yourself now. Like it's not something that it felt that, that valuable to me in other contexts. And then with, and then that actually comes through like a much more caring with Kelly too, like a much more attentive to her needs and, and ask so much. And I don't think about it either. It's just kind of happens. Like ask her what she needs. I do a lot more things like just around the house and just stuff that to be of support to her in whatever way I can. And it's, it's, it's been cool. It's been really, really cool. And I feel like a more whole person in a, in an odd way. That's beautiful, man. With, uh, I want to take, I want to split these into focus first on the protector side of things. Would you say, cause I feel the, like to a T, I feel the exact same thing. I'm ready to rip, like chew someone's head off if they were to like look at Luca in a wrong way, you know, but yeah. I'm curious, uh, I've got my experience of it, but I want to hear from you of, is it more of that protector side? Is it just an energetic, like a, a, an energetic thing, like a preparation to step up or is there, are there other areas of your life that you can tangibly point, tangibly point to? Like, for example, this is one big reason why I went to uh, Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response to do his protector training. Or um, I'm trying to think of other things. Like there's been a few examples wanting to, you know, purchase a gun, get trained on that. Um, there's just a, like a few tangible things or having my alarm system in my house actually functioning. There's just like a, a few actual things in the world that I can point to like, okay, I'm, this is a byproduct of this new, uh, stepping into maybe the protector of my child. Is there anything, uh, in addition that comes up for you? Yeah. So when we, we did talk about this protector, uh, the protector one down in, at Sheepdog Response. It's something right. I wanted to do for a while. And I actually was going to go down there first off and do uh, the carbine training for just AR training and the long range shooting stuff because that's what I'm interested in. And then when I, we were discussing kind of the Protector 1, I was like, oh, that applies more to my life now. A year ago, it wouldn't have. I'm like, yeah, I can handle myself. I can fight. I, you know, whatever. Like if I've been, in, I've done this stuff before, I'd rather learn how to like be more competent with firearms. Now, it's much more... I'm in this role of protector in my family. I did go buy a new gun right, right when she was born, just because I was like, I need a new gun. I need one in my car all the time. And I carry every day. Like I carry a, um, a SIG P320 every day. I carry a full-sized handgun every day. But I wanted, it's like I had one in my fanny pack where I always keep it. And then I have one in my truck that's stationed in case somebody was to try and carjack me because I, my truck uh, is the family car. So we're always in there together. And I am assuring myself that I'm not to be fucked with in that environment, right? So it's little things like that. I'm also just more keen to what's around me, different things like that. Like, it's really weird that I'm like with, with my surroundings. Weird scenario happened in Hawaii, actually. Some guy was chasing another guy with a sword what? and like ran by us. And our <laughs> kid Ro was there. It was, yeah, I mean, my, uh, my wife's brother was like, yeah, that's just Hawaii. There's like these crazy people who run around with swords and like attack each other. It was weird. It was, a, this guy was like cracked out and I didn't have my, handgun on me. And I'm like, why did I not bring that with me? <laughs> like, it was a weird deal, but, it was, but I remember being like, I'll take that away from that little, little bastard. If, if I really need to, it was a weird deal, but he was, he was focused on his guy. I didn't want to distract him from what he was, the other guy he was chasing with a sword, but it was the first time I'd been in that situation. But 
right before I got my concealed carry, even Kelly was pregnant and we went out to a place where I elk hunt actually right where I killed my first elk this last year. And it's a, it wasn't, it was a pretty, for the places that I go, a pretty easy hike. And Kelly wanted to go get a good hike in, right? Like it was her last one before we had the baby. She wasn't so pregnant that she couldn't hike a few miles. So we went in and did a hike and came back out. And we stopped at this Chipotle in Silverthorne, Colorado. And something happened. This guy, there was like a double meat dispute at the checkout thing. And this guy called the, the lady that was checking him out a dumb bitch. And like this other guy, and I was kind of like in line. So I was kind of like drifting closer to the violence as I tend to do. I was like, in case this gets in, I need to break this up or something. I don't really know what's going on because I couldn't really hear what was going on. And anyways, long story short, the guy ended up pulling a gun on the guy in the parking lot. And I'm like, okay, I needed that. Like nobody got hurt. The guy got arrested. He got pulled over down the road, got arrested. Uh, and I'm sure I don't know what happened to him. But it was like, I just, we were just going on a hike and at a Chipotle in a mountain town in Colorado and a gun gets pulled on somebody. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I've got, and I had my concealed carry course, but I hadn't gone through the, and done all the paperwork and stuff. I just kind of procrastinated it. The next day <laughs> I was at this government office doing my fingerprints, getting my stuff and was, you know, and I had a gun in, on my bino harness for my hunting bino harness in my car. So if I would have pulled up to that situation 15 minutes later. I would have pulled up on a guy with a gun right next to me with that, with a gun, a guy with a gun in somebody else's face. Like that's, you know, put in a very real, real world context. I'm so glad no one got hurt, but it was something for me. that was a really good experience to have like this shit can happen anywhere. Like if you, I would, I would, you could have bet me a million dollars that was going to happen there. I would never have taken that bet. It was like, that's insane. And so that kind of thing to kind of snap me out of my, like, um, delusion of, of any kind of safety. And then things have gotten crazy. If you're downtown somewhere, you're doing whatever. It's like Kelly took road to LA and I was like super anxious about the whole thing. And I'm like, you can't even carry a gun there. And like, you're going to be down, you're going to be in Venice like that. I don't, I don't like that <laughs> at all. It's crazy. So like my, as someone who's not really risk averse, like my, my view of things has changed. And I am now that we have a little more time starting to prepare myself more and like find the ways that I can prepare my own self more to, to step into that. Cause I know I have the capacity to protect, but do I have the skills to back that up? And that's where I'm starting to see like the, the, the weaknesses in my own, in my, in myself as a protector in that, in that way. Well, the thing with that, that comes up is whatever the wake up call, like for you, for myself included, this fatherhood piece has been a huge wake up call to seek out some of this stuff. But I think you use the word perfectly. Like it's, it's a delusion that these things don't exist now full transparency. Like I had a, you know, I grew up pretty sheltered. Like I grew up in a good area, you know, parents have been great, you know, like not to say we haven't had challenges and stuff like that, but, uh, most of the, the challenges, not, I mean, when I think back to some of the biggest learning experience, rites of passages, initiation, training at West side barbell, like most of that stuff I had to go seek out because my yeah. environment growing up was, was, you know, and I'm very grateful for it was a good one. Now, that being said, like the underlying theme that why I appreciate Sheepdog, for example, is, I mean, they do teach uh, grappling self-defense and, and firearm training, but it's all through the umbrella of situational awareness. And you were saying like that keen level. So whatever the wake up call is, whether it's fatherhood or something else, unfortunately, oftentimes it takes a tragedy to wake us up. But that situational awareness, whether you're listening to this right now and you don't give a shit about having a firearm, good, fine, let it be. And that situational awareness piece is so huge. And then the second piece that you said is 
one of the things that I learned over there was what they were sharing at Sheepdog is like, oftentimes, like, what if, you know, I think you'd said it, like, what if you showed up, like, there was a gunfight, you showed up 15 minutes late, then what the fuck do you do? Then you, you need to be a medic, you need to be medically trained to actually help out the people around you. Or if you're in a car accident, going camping yeah. somewhere and you're away from everybody, like it doesn't have to be a like a violent altercation. It could be any like somebody could, you know, you're we're out we we do crazy shit like my and I don't I don't have any any like um, reservations about my kids doing wild stuff. I want them to do wild stuff. I did wild stuff growing up. You know, I grew up in the country, man. We had guns. We had you know we were I got my first gun when I was like five years old. I didn't like, carry it around, but I got a twenty two, a little Marlin twenty two that my brother has now, and then I got a four ten when I was about seven. And then I got a 30-30 when I was 10 and I still have that in my, uh, my gun safe now. I love that gun. So it's just like, it's a, like, um, it just means a lot to me because that's like in my, and that's what people don't understand about gun culture too, is like that to me was my granddad saying like, you're responsible enough to have a big boy gun. And that comes with a lot of responsibility that you have to learn and learn how to use it. And at the time it would like almost knock me down and kick me so hard. And now it's so funny because it's like, it's like the, the easiest gun I have to hit to handle right now. And there's something in that, you know, as like, it's kind of a coming of age type of deal. So I grew up around that kind of stuff, but that doesn't mean that I'm like prepared for those kind of situations. Like, you know, I was in a, I was out uh, elk hunting and I'm, my kids will do this too. And it was a frosty morning and I didn't have that much experience. And I slipped on a log and landed like sideways on the log. And I remember looking at the log where I fell and it hurt. I mean, I like bruised my ribs, but no big deal. I was no harm, no foul. But if there would have been a broken off branch where I fell, it probably would have punctured my lung. You know what I mean? Like I hit the thing hard. I was carrying a 60 pound pack while I did it. So it's like, I'm completely ill-prepared to handle that. You know, my lung collapses out here. Like I'm five miles from the truck. Wow. You know, what would I even do? You know, and I, don't, I just, you, you have these little wake up calls or, and whatever with my kid and they fall, you know, fall off a dirt bike or they're climbing or doing something dumb and they, you know, fall down and you fall down the wrong spot and you, something happens. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm not a medic, you know? So having that basic stuff and just the preparation and you could get attacked, you could get robbed, you could get mugged, you know, lots of crazy stuff can happen. And you could be, you know, leaving a comedy show in a parking garage and somebody's just like waiting. Cause you know, you look like an easy target. And I think the best, the least you can do in my opinion is make yourself not an easy target. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Yeah. That's super valid and important. And with regards to the softening piece now, so you know you, you were you were sharing about how uh, you know you've softened in the presence of Roe and you're more attentive to Kelly. I'm curious, have you noticed? Uh, and you spoke to a little bit, but I'd love to hear more. Have you noticed like? Well, let me give some context, and maybe it'll make more sense. Like one of the things that I've noticed when I hold Luca. And and now he's got enough strength to like not dive bomb his head. He, he, he can actually uh, hang out upright. And so we can basically like, I'm hugging him for hours. One, the isometric, like when they say dad bod and it's usually a, a down, like it's talking down, just got a dad bod. Dude, my biceps for doing fucking three hours of isometric holds. And if he's sleeping, there's no way I'm moving this guy. That pterodactyl noise, like... I'm going to hold this as long as I can. And so my biceps are completely sore. But that being said, um, when I'm holding him heart to heart, it's been so, for lack of a better word, it's been so healing for me because it's been an opportunity to like talk differently to myself, my little child. I've even like held him and envisioned I'm holding myself. I've also gone through the exercise of like, first I'm holding my younger self, then I'm holding my dad. Like mm -hmm. it's been like an incredible, 
like vehicle for my own healing. Uh, I'm curious, have you found that or how has that shown up for you? Yeah, it's a diff- It's different for me. This actually came through like in the first couple of months. And when she was crying a lot, mm. she'd be crying, you know, and I would, I just was so bad at handling it. Like I was great whenever she was chill. She was crying a little bit and she just wanted to bottle her or she wanted to eat. She, we didn't do a bottle for I think five, four or five months. So if it was, if it was an easily solved problem, I was cool. If she was crying and I didn't know what to do, I would go through these kind of like ways. I would get mad, not at her, but I would just be mad at myself or at the situation for no reason. Then I'd get really frustrated and upset and sad. Like I would just go through this like phases of emotions, like really intense with this crying. And I actually uh, read, now I've read a lot of Dan Siegel's books and I really endorse him for parents or new parents or people that want to be parents. I've started reading him when I was like 27. Like mm-hmm. I was getting into this stuff. Uh, childhood development really fascinated me from a young age. Um, so I was, I was reading his book, Parenting from the Inside Out. And he talked about his experience with crying and what it brought up for him. And he thought that maybe it was that he, a lot of people struggle with that because they weren't attended to when they were children, when they would cry. So they would, you're kind of going through the same emotions you would go through when you were crying, when you hear that kind of inconsolable cry. And so that was, and Kelly noticed it too. And we had to have a talk about it. And it wasn't like, again, I wasn't mad at my kid. Like she was just, she needed something that I, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was learning as a new dad. And I tried not to like let those emotions out, but they would come through, you know? And I don't, and again, I feel like she could feel them, even though they weren't, had nothing to do with her. And the last thing I want is her to feel like she's doing something wrong by essentially doing the best she can to voice her needs as a one month old baby. And he talked about that. And he actually had gone through an experience where a medical school where these kids were really sick. And he was having to get an IV in this kid who was close to terminal. And this kid was just inconsolably crying as they're trying to you know, keep poking this kid to try to get the IV in. And how when his, he had kids, this is when he was in his 20s, as kids later on, that when his kids would cry like that, it would bring that like sadness and fear and all those feelings back up for him. And it was just really interesting for me to, I needed that at that time to be like, Hey man, like you've got to set, create some space here where when she's upset, like it it does, it, it, it still hurts me now, but it's more like it hurts me because I want to help. Not mm-hmm. like all the other emotions have kind of gone by the way. So, cause I just brought, I brought kind of some awareness to it. And that was really healing for me of like, Hey, I, and the way I look at it is, is cause I didn't have the best childhood. And I look at it, I'm like, I, because I had a harder time, like I have the opportunity here to offer something I didn't get. And I have awareness of what to do in that situation because I didn't have it. In the absence of it, I got the awareness of what I needed in that time. You know, and I'm not, I'm a pretty soft parent to a baby. Now, when we get to adolescence, that'll be a different conversation, I'm sure. Right. But again, and my mom is like this too. My mom's, you know, my mom. And she was talking about this and she's like, she just kind of gets whatever she wants. And Kelly's like, she's three months old. Yeah. <laughs> she kind of gets whatever she wants. Like if she, she's, well, I'm not negotiating with a baby. What are you talking about? What do you think? And that's, that, that was the mindset of these like boomers, man. Now my mom's not quite a boomer. She's an older Gen X, but still it's like that mindset of like, don't negotiate with terrorists when you're talking about an <laughs> infant. It's like, the fuck are you talking about, dude? They're babies. Like they need to eat or they got a, they got a diaper change or they need something, you know, they need something. They're not just crying because they want to cry. You know, I think sometimes they're crying to like develop their lungs and different things like that and whatever. But at the same time, I'm like the whole like cry it out bullshit. I'm like, that's dumber than fuck. Like it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like I, I'm just like, that's not, 
that's not creating it. That, that, that doesn't fit in the principle of like creating a healthy adult. That's what I'm trying to do here is create like a well-adjusted, very capable, principled adult, you know? And I, I think I do that through at this stage, like being very caring and compassionate. You can't discipline a five month old. Like what am I, you know what I mean? So you're trying to provide her with like stimulation and opportunities and learning and these things. I'm not, but if she's upset, she's upset. If she has a bad day, she has a bad day. That just is what it is. And sometimes she's, sometimes she'll go four or five days and she's just like a delight to be around. And then sometimes for a couple of days, she's a complete pain in the ass and doesn't want to sleep and then gets too tired. And I don't, for, for the life of me, I can't understand why a baby gets overtired. I'm like, just go to sleep. Like you'll feel better. Yeah. And I start. I actually sing songs about how much better she'll feel if she goes to sleep and it actually works kind of. It's weird. Like, she was so inconsolable today actually. And I sang to her and she just like giggled at me and fell asleep. And I was like, huh, isn't that weird? You know, <laughs> I just make songs up. I don't think I've ever sang her the same song twice. I just, whatever comes to me in the moment, I'm just like, I just make up a song. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I've got my own way of, of that as well. And like, uh, it's been super cool making up songs. Like, you know, I, I you know this, but, uh, I've been taking like, I think for like two years, Mongolian throat singing lessons. Yeah. And so, uh, but it's so loud that like, so right when he was born, I started doing it, like I'll hold him, but then I'll turn my head away so that it's not like blaring in his ear. Cause I still am not skilled enough to really regulate how loud I am. I've only got like zero to like nine or 10. So the it's first not time you blow a djembe, it's just like the loudest thing ever. <laughs> it's exactly, it's exactly like you're going full lungs in it or at it. But, uh, it's been so cool and, and been something that, that it'll still put him to sleep. Uh, which is super sweet. But what would you say, uh, what has been some of the biggest surprises of either this journey, being a dad, what, or, or any level of that? What comes up for you as the, the one or two of the biggest surprises? You know, I really went into it and I'm really grateful that I did this, not thinking I knew a goddamn thing. And I could mm. I could have gotten myself into this intellectualizing it, because I, like I said, I was into childhood development because I was really just curious about my own childhood and kind of integrating my own past. And Dan Siegel talks about this, like integrating your own childhood experience into your life is essential to be a, a parent. Like to be a quality parent, you need to have made sense of and integrated in your life experience and then helping kids integrate in positive and negative, you know, if you want to give something a charge, like positive or negative experiences into their own life, right? Can you explain that maybe in a slightly different way? Yeah, way he for me. So for an adult, like for a, it's like you need to go through your kind of inventory of your life, challenging experiences, positive experiences, kind of the things that shaped who you are, and find those like dark nooks and crannies that you don't really want to acknowledge and integrate those experiences and make sense of those. Right? Maybe you, maybe your mom, like my parents, were addicts, and that was really hard for me, um, and led to a lot of confusion and misunderstanding, which I think led to the personality that I have, for better or for worse. But I kind of like it. Um, but just kind of making sense of that kind of stuff. Now, when you're talking about a kid, right? And the example he gives, I think is really great. Talks about a little girl who got in a car accident, fender bender, no big deal. But a lot of times when a hard things happen to a kid like that, that's nobody's fault. Like it just, you know, it was like a little parking lot, like a window busted, but nothing crazy. The ambulance came, everybody was fine. Nobody got hurt, but that's really scary. I actually had that happen when I was a kid and the, um, the response from that. And a lot of times with my family, the response was, don't talk about it. If, it was, if it's not good, don't talk about it, right? Don't bring it up. And so he brings up this example, this little girl who went through that and the, and the parents were 
really involved and like would ask her what her experience was. And she was, I think three or four at the time, like really little. And so she would call the ambulance, like the wee woo, <laughs> like the sirens, you know, and they would ask her like, Hey, what happened? You know? And she's like, well, this happened. And then the, the other car hit us. And then the wee woo came and they did this. And it's like, yeah. The, so, so an accident happened and it was really scary, but then people were there and they helped you and everybody was okay. You know what I mean? So she doesn't internalize that right. As like a scary thing that she can't talk about. Oh, like, like there's a lot of tension around it versus it's like, you go through and you have that, you discuss it over and over again to where it kind of loses that charge. And that's integrating it into life experience. So now when she's, when she's uh, 10, 12, you can re- kind of recall that experience. It's like, oh yeah, like we got into a fender bender and that's, you know, it's a story versus like, oh, that was really scary for it. Cause a four-year-old doesn't understand that concept. Another one that actually, um, I remember it was, I think it was Gabor Mate spoke about was, and this is a little darker, but this girl was six and was, abused by her cousin, right? And she's telling the story about how her older cousin had abused her and all these things and gone on and kind of had this whole story about this. And then he asked how old the cousin was. And she was six, the cousin was eight. And so when you think about it, you hear that story, then the way you say it is that you would think that was like 14, 15, 16, 18 year old person that was abusing this child. When you change the context of, oh, that was a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and what had actually happened to her, it was like a bit, like that's a big person. That's somebody who's way older than her doing these things. But if you look at it, it was really two kids kind of being, it was probably inappropriate, but kids can get into, it wasn't anything super egregious. It was just like, but to her, she had experienced it in that way. They'd never been able to integrate that experience into her life. Right. And so things like that, a lot of times they get pushed away and shoved aside and integrating those into your life experience is really important. So we kind of have this principle of integration with her, even though we haven't had to do that at this point yet. She's five months old. But when things happen, and this is for good experiences too, right? Because those can kind of run, run away with you. If you think you're the smartest in the class or you're the best at this or the best at that, you gotta have like, hey, like maybe you are talented, but you still gotta work hard. You still gotta do those things. Like having those kind of conversations and keeping kind of, keeping every, the opportunity and kind of operating again from that, that principle of integration is super important for us. So yeah, does that make, that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. That was super helpful. Over the last five years, one thing that I've been very present to is the transition I've made out of competition. And one of the things that's been a struggle for me has been my training and fitness journey. And that's really because when I compare the volume, the intensity, the mindset of how I train today compared to when I was competing, it's very different. I mean, for so much of my life since I was a young kid, I had very clear, very structured goals. And in recent years, that transition to not only winning, but also doing so in a healthy and holistic way. But since I've exited competition, not having that clearly defined goal has been challenging. And being a dad, however, has really brought this full circle because as as Connor and I are talking about in this conversation, the role of the protector is very present for me right now. And in my eyes and in my feeling, in order to do that, I need to be a very physically capable person. I need to be able to do whatever life is asking of me so that I can show up fully and not be restricted in movement or if there's things I want to move and lift and even play with Luca as he grows older. And this idea of being a very 
physically capable person. I can't even tell you how important I've realized it is just in this last year or so. And so whether it's when I have, for example, Luca and his stroller and I want to lift the stroller from, I've got to grab the very base of it and squat down and my spine's a little rotated and lift it from the ground and then walk two or three steps out of our front door. That's not an easy feat. And I've realized, oh my gosh, the training that I've been doing with kettlebells and Bulgarian bags, I never would have thought it would be preparing me for something like this. And so whether it's that or just being able to sprint at the drop of a hat or grab something that that's fallen from, uh, from Lauren's bag or something like that, this idea of being very physically capable is so important. And that is why one of the benefits of doing a solid structured training program like what I've designed in Kettlebell Lifestyle, that is my nine-week physical movement training protocol. It is a holistic training program where not only you are going to learn to be a more physically capable person, but you are going to learn skills for life. And so if you're interested in that program, it's exactly what I do almost day in, day out, how I coach my lifters, my athletes, anybody at any level, whether you're starting from the bare bones beginning to an intermediate level person with some experience in fitness and with kettlebells, I guarantee you, you will learn a ton about yourself, about physical movement, about being a more physically capable person by going through that program. And for anybody listening to The Path, you will get 20% off. All you got to do is use code PATH20, and I will put the link in the show notes to sign up for Kettlebell Lifestyle. Now let's get back to the show. But as far as surprises, maybe I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but surprises were like, Again, like I said, I went in just like knowing I know nothing, right? And <laughs> even though I could have caught myself in like getting really heady with it, um, I surprised myself. And this is, I talked about this on, on my show a little bit. I'm actually not that proud of much of my life in a weird, I feel like I've swung and missed a bunch of times of, you know, I feel like I've missed opportunities and I can go back and kind of nitpick my life in different ways and different things like that. And that, that's kind of the place that I live with a lot of things. Like I've never really been good enough in my own estimation of what I should be. I am so fucking proud of myself for the dad that I am. And I'm like, it's, it's the only thing in my life where I can be like, I'm proud of that. I mean, there's a handful of things. Like I was proud that I shot an elk with a bow and I'm proud of this and that, like little, but that's like hobbies, right? Like that's, you know, I was proud of like a, I played golf. I had a good round. Like I'm happy with myself, but it's kind of fleeting, right? Cause next season is the next time. And the next round is the next time. I'm so fucking proud of myself for the way I am as a dad and like how capable I feel at it. Like I've never felt this capable of something else in my entire life. It's really weird. And so for me, that was the biggest surprise. Like I, just because that's just not where I operate from. Like I'm hypercritical of myself. I project that onto other people. I, I, I'm, I'm a really good problem solver because I am hypercritical of stuff. But I look at myself as a dad. I'm like, yeah, there's things I could do better. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm learning. Of course I'm learning, but like, I'm just proud of myself. And that's a weird deal. And I feel just like, oh, I got this. This is cool. Like, this is fun. It's hard. I'm tired. <laughs> like I've been sick for a week because I can't get enough sleep to like kick this damn thing. That's why I kind of sound like Robert F. Kennedy right now, but I'm stoked. And I'm just like, I'm proud of myself. And that's just like, I've said it like 14 times, but like, I just, it feels so good to say that. And something that is so consequential because all the shit that I get frustrated with myself for, or, or feel like I didn't do a good enough job at or whatever, it now feels smaller because this matters more. 
And this, maybe this is why, I don't know. Like if, if I want to try to make meaning of all of it, I don't, but I don't really fucking care. Like I'm just really, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that, that shocked me. It's something Kelly and I talked about the other day and really cool. Not to make it about me, but. Well, this podcast is an interview about you. <laughs> so <laughs> if there's any time, no, uh, w- with that said, I think, uh, well, one, that's amazing to hear, bro. That's amazing to hear. And even if we were to like take what you just said and like the, um, the importance and the value of taking stock, taking inventory and learning to self-validate. And that's, you know, as I'm learning, you know, I'm fascinated, you know, as well on childhood development, whether it's from a movement perspective or, you know, psychologically. And, you know, one of the things that I'm learning is that what we learn from father or one of the things that we learn from our fathers in the beginning is, you know, father is where we learn first, they validate us. And then hopefully they teach us how to validate ourselves. And maybe like in those early years, it's, it's a give and take first. It's, you know, great job, great job, Connor, great job, Mikey. And then it's asking him, how did you feel about that? What did you think about that? What are you proud of? And, and, you know, it's going to be this oscillation, but the, the validation from fathers. And, and I think so many men in this world have not truly learned how to self-validate and uh, more so like self-deprecate or self-judge. And that's, we all have that part of us, but I think it's so important just to anchor in. And I'm so, just so stoked to hear that is to hear you really fucking seeing not only the amazing father that you are, but the amazing man that you are as well. And as important, how you are modeling that for other men in the world, Uh, especially because you even just shared earlier, like, you didn't have the best childhood. And, you know, I don't know, I know a little bit about your relationship with your father, but, you know, you are getting to do things uh, maybe differently and you're getting to model that and to experience all the range and the the depths of all this stuff within yourself, witnessing her. So I just want to like call back in how amazing it is to hear you. And I don't know if this is uncomfortable for you to hear because I can see you <laughs> smiling, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm just stoked for you, brother. So I'm celebrating you as well. And just so stoked to hear you acknowledging yourself for the fuck amazing job that you're doing. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. That means a lot. Yeah, it's really funny. And it's so cool to see, like, I know there's a handful of us, like this group that I've been, you know, close to for years and we all seem to have kids in the same, like, <laughs> it was, what's, what's Luca's birthday? January? Uh, January 28th. Okay. It's a, that's our brother's birthday. It's a week after ah. my birthday. Um, yeah. All right there, you know, and then I've got a few ha- friends that have like older kids and I'm just excited to like my sister got pregnant when she was 18. She's still with the same dude. Like she's, and she's, it was, I was so panicked about that at the time that I was like, man, I don't know. She's going to miss out. Looking at it now, I'm like, she's just, a, she's a mom. Like she's, I'm so proud of her as a mom. Like she's actually been a big inspiration to me and her boys are the coolest kids on the planet. She's got three boys. They're all feral as fuck. Like they're just feral <laughs> kids. They ride dirt bikes. Uh, they do different things. They came over to the house, to my, to my parents' house. Um, this is my dad's, uh, dad's daughter. So my half sister. And so, uh, they're not really close with like my mom and them, but my mom loves her and she's great. Dude, her oldest, Abe brought a book, brought a, a physical book. What kids now, what kids now bring a book to a house? This is like a 10 year old kid, right? to read, <laughs> just hanging out. It's like, yeah, I just want to read this book. And then I go out with the other two. They don't have phones. They don't have tablets. They don't have any of this stuff. We're out playing, like throwing the football in the backyard, playing around. 
Like they're just, and I look at that and I'm like, man, they're like chasing chickens around the yard. They're just, you know, and when they were out there playing in the mud, I've got another, another buddy of mine, Jesse, I don't know if you've met him or not. Uh, he owns central athlete in Austin and his boys just run around like naked all the time. They just don't ever want to put clothes on. And he posted a video um, on Instagram, like he successfully raised feral children. And one kid is out there like doing something. And the other one is just like, butt naked, just like legs spread, just peeing everywhere. <laughs> just peeing in the yard. <laughs> just the funniest thing I've ever seen. And you see this and I'm like, there's been this shift, right? Like that's totally, I mean, we, we were raised like that, but I don't think anybody consciously did it where we've been. So like at our generation is kind of like millennials have been so confined to like one thing that's changed with me is I don't want to be around screens anymore. I don't like being behind screens all the time. Like I'm looking at getting a part-time job at a golf course a couple of days a week, just so I can just go be somewhere at five o'clock in the morning every day. But that was my life growing up was working in the oil field, get up at five, you know, watch the sun come up. You don't think about it. You just go do it. And now I'm like, Oh yeah, I do a podcast. I talk into a microphone. I'm behind a computer 90% of the time. It just, I'm like, this is not living, you know? And I think you're seeing this. That's why people are moving to Boise, Idaho and here in Colorado and why we get out of the town. It's like, I don't know. It's like, our kids going to be so inundated with that. I'm like, let's get them out of there, man. Like, let's just not, I just don't think that, I don't know. I, I feel like all that does is just put you in a situation where chat GPT can take your job. You know, it's like my brother's, a, my brother and stepdad are electrician. My dad painted cars and airplanes. It's like, well, chat GPT can't do that. It's kind of like this resurgence of like blue collar validity. And they've been like the blue collar folks have been in your family's blue collar too, like worked in the granite industry, right? And stuff like that. So it's like those people have kind of been put to the wayside since the nineties. It's like, learn to code, do this tech and that. I'm like, now look at it. Like is, is, is chat GPT going to fix your plumbing? You know, we've seen this stuff and it's like practical skills now just became a lot more valuable, like practical hands-on real life stuff. And that's where I, I kind of want her to live and my son to live in that, in that world, you know? And I'm just, it's been, it's been different to see that. I think it's, and it really gives me a lot of hope because even, you know, like Rose probably going to be killing elk by the time she's 12, you know, like you can legally hunt big game in Colorado at 12 and Texas, I think it's like eight. So we'll be going down there. So it's like, she's going to be doing these things and be comfortable around these things before most it's just going to be a part of her life. It's not going to be something she thinks about. Not going to be something I have to really explain to her. She's just going to be in it, you know, and like working on and helping me do things. I even had her help me make an element the other day. Shout out to element. Like she like took the packet and like shook it in the thing and like she almost made it. She almost spilled it everywhere, of course, but it was just like, little things like that. And you see all these Montessori tool uh, toys and different stuff. Like kids are standing at the counter and helping cut vegetables and stuff like that. Like we didn't really know to do that. Like it wasn't a conscious thing. Like we did maybe did some of that and help with stuff around the house, but I've seen more and more parents like lean in that direction. And not that I need to tell anybody what to do as far as raising their own kids, but God damn, that seems important. You know, like I learned more in the oil field than I learned in college. And I'm more capable of things now. Like I know what tools do. I know, you know, I can, I can do basic stuff. I, I can handle most, most little things here and there. If I don't know, I can figure it out. And I know so many people who can't change their own tire, my guy. Like I know people, I know a lot of people who are rich as fuck. And if they have a blowout, they have to look at a manual or YouTube something to figure out how to, how to change a tire. Also the reason I won't drive a Tesla because you can't change the tire yourself. <laughs> really? It's like a whole process. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Like, uh, it's, it's, so I'm like, man, this self-reliance piece, I think is just, you know, I kind of, and this is where I come from when the show is like these principles of curiosity, resilience, and passion. Those things are really important to me. And I think you have to have things in your life that you're passionate about that you want to show up to as like the best version of yourself, right? But this resilience piece, like that's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. It's like trying to figure out. And I think so we're so quick to have other people kind of solve our problems and just pay for it. 
But how often do we just like say like, hey, can we try to figure this out? And then you don't think about like, if I try and figure that out, then I can maybe teach my kid how to try and figure this thing out. And even though like in the, and it wasn't the book of five rings, like through one thing, learn 10,000 things. Like you just learn a little bit from every little thing you do and you accumulate that over time. And I didn't coming from where I came from, like it wasn't something I thought about in that moment, but looking back, I'm like, and I resented the oil field for so long. Cause it just, I felt like it restricted me. And I'll look back at it now and I'm like, God damn, I'm glad I know how to work a pipe wrench. You know, like I know, I know how to do all. And my dad was a mechanic too. So it's like that kind of stuff came naturally and I can always ask for help there. And it's like, my brother is an electrician. Like I've got, I'm like this stuff. I never really thought about how valuable that part of society is. And it, uh, Mike Rowe talks about this. Like that's just been almost like shamed to be a part of that, that society. And I'm like, man, trade school all of a sudden just became way more valuable than college. If it wasn't already right. Your best way to get to six figures is to go to trade school. Like if you want to be, if you want to make money, be a welder. You know, I mean, well, you know how valuable welders are. Like it's, I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but it's like, these things are just really insane to see how they've been treated in society. And it's like, I want to raise my kids to be competent and resilient because especially now, like we don't know what's going to come up the pipe, right? Like we don't know where this is going to be, right? Nukes could start flying tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, and it's, it's, it's weird that we're even saying that and we should be so far beyond that as a society. But I mean, I think raising resilient kids is just fucking crucial. Well, hearing that, you know, there's, there's many things, for example, from our parents' generation that, and you spoke to plenty of them that, that are worthy and, and important to carry on. And that being said, like we live in a very different time than them. And so there really isn't, and I don't know if, if any generation is like this, but it really does feel like where we are right now is very much uncharted territory. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, history does repeat itself in different ways for sure. But in that regard, like you and I, or you and the people that we circulate our, ourselves with our friends are like, they all have podcasts. They're all like at the forefront of learning and staying with their fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the world. And whether that's from a health perspective, a physical or a, a, a political perspective, whatever. So what would you say if with Roe, for example, and how, how you're going to be modeling fatherhood, what would you say if you could just list off, I'd be really curious, what are the top five to 10 things that you feel are going to be absolutely essential for her to learn, let's say by the age of, of maybe 16, what comes up for you? Harvesting your own food. Number okay. one, you got to have your own food, basic tool skills right? Like basic, just like the basics, like what this is, what it does, where it applies, problem solving. And I know that's a very general thing, but it's like, Hey, if I give you a thing that you've never really experienced, can you figure it out? Like that's something that I'm actually, I, it kind of frustrates me because that's just not that valued. And like, I feel like in my, critical in my thinking, not critical thinking, critical thinking is like, it's like, like the way I grew up, right? I call I used the oil field a lot. I was talking to my granddad about this. You have a problem. Problems cost you money, right? You got a truck, you got a handful of tools in that truck. You're 50 miles from anywhere. You got to, so you got to solve that problem with what you got. Right. So it's like, can I give you a physical problem? Right. Say a pipe's burst or whatever it is. And can you make a workaround? Like, can you look at a thing and look at what you have and see how can I use what I have to solve that problem? I know it's a very general thing, but to me, like that's, that's, that, that skill set in its own is really, really valuable. Firearms training. And physical preparedness. I kind of put those in one thing because they aren't separate to me. Like how to use a firearm, how to how to defend yourself would be four. And 
Number five is a healthy distrust in centralized authority. (laughs) Deeply ingrained (laughs) distrust in centralized authority. Does that make sense? Is that good? Is that a good five? I'm I'm going to write that down on our wall right now. (laughs) (laughs) The the top five uh, more commandments of the more family. Right. Well, that's, that's the thing is that those are genderless either. Those are like, that's boys, girls, doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's like, and I think through those five things, it's kind of like, all right, you can do a lot with that, right? You want to work in tech, you want to be a professional golfer. Like these are all things that, and it's, it's the funny things like you, those, you have access to a lot of those in different ways. Right. And that's why even I play a lot of golf. Now you get yourself in situations where you just got to be creative, you know? And I, and you think about like problem solving, like what I said about like trying to fix an issue that you have right in front of you with what with whatever you have, however limited that is, like that's medics training, right? That's trying to figure out how to how to shape a golf ball around a tree if you need to for some certain reason. Like that goes into all kinds of stuff, right? And so it's like that capacity that like part of your brain that does that because we have so many things in our life that will do shit for you. You don't have to think about that, right? You get a problem, Google it. You know what I mean? And now you can, I've learned a lot on YouTube about how to do things I didn't know how to do before, but you still got to go put it into practice. And I think we live in a world where that part of our brain just does not get served. You know, and, it, and, and the capacity for that leads to more creativity. So to me, those, those creativity and kind of problem solving are really linked in that way. Yeah. And with all that stuff, what comes up is also the belief in ourselves or the belief in our children's selves that they can fucking figure this out. Like that yeah. you, the, the belief in yourself that you have the capability to hunt for your own food, the belief that you can utilize tools as opposed to thinking like, no, I can't, no, I can't. Like that's really, I think a lot of our role is to encourage them. Yes, you can put them in situations in a safe place where they can fail as opposed to overly, you know, shelterizing, sheltering. Sheltering. (laughs) 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 Oh man. Well, wonderful brother. Well, as we close this out, uh, are there any final words or any wrap up thoughts, whether it's on fatherhood or, uh, your journey and having this beautiful daughter and what it's done for you, anything you'd love to leave people with today, man, you know, there's so much of me that wants to say, just like, don't wait if you want to do it. Mm, have but kids. I know there's, it's like, I think one of the things that was really important that gets overlooked is like, oh, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not this, I'm not that financially, whatever this means. I think there's a serious path to preparing yourself to be a parent. And I talked about this a little bit before integrating your life experience. If you're going to do this, if you're going to be a good parent, like if you take that responsibility to be a, an excellent parent and raise excellent kids, which is so fucking incredibly rare these days. Like, and I'm not trying to criticize parents, but goddamn, shit's gotten weird, right? Like, you've got to integrate your own life experience. You've got to make sense of your own life experience. As hard as that may be, that may mean therapy, that may mean a coach, that may mean just reading, whatever it is. You've got to integrate that experience in order to not leave that shit in your kid, right? Because you're going to fuck up. We're going to fuck. We're going to, our kid's going to be like in 20 years, be like, hey, you (laughs) fucked this up. I'll be like, yeah, I did. Sorry. You know, I do the best I can. But I can actually say I did the best I can, right? Because I, I'm, I'm using my own life experience as a, as a guide for what could be done better versus as a pattern for how to create the same type of gaps that I feel like I had in my own life. And I think, you know, if you can check out Dan Siegel, he's the number one as far as this kind of stuff, as far as I'm concerned. He's got tons of books that meet in every step of life, explains it neurologically as well, very practically, but also on a very like mindful and spiritual level as well. So I think that that piece 
if you're going to do this, like the preparation is more there than it is in the tangible world, right? The preparation for being a parent is more in that integration piece than it is about like, oh, the finances and all this and that, because you do grow into it, right? I didn't think I was ready for so long. Maybe I wasn't, maybe it happened exactly how it was supposed to, but like that looking at it now, it's like, I'm of all the things I did to get ready. That was a thing that I actually think mattered the most. I appreciate that, man. And I love, uh, yeah, I feel so blessed to be along this journey with you, bro. Uh, to knowing you well before we were both papas and, uh, to now to, uh, yeah, to seeing how we're growing, evolving, and and uh, hopefully sharing some things that will that I know will help you know a lot of people out there. So thank you so much. And course, for man. anyone interested in connecting with you, where would you like them to go to uh, whether to learn more about what you're doing or to connect with you at any level? Yeah, uh, Connor Wanders on Instagram is the best place. Connor with an E and Wanders with an A, C O N N E R W A N D E R S. Told you have have trouble spelling. And then the <laughs> podcast is Connor Wanders as well. Um, yeah, that's the best place to find me. You got a Patreon as well. If you want to jump in and ask some more direct questions about this kind of stuff. And dude, I am just so excited for these two little kiddos to meet finally. I don't know when it's going to happen. I hope it's sooner <laughs> rather than later. Um, I apologize in advance for my daughter being seven feet taller than your kid. <laughs> she got some long legs, bro. 99th percentile for height. She's all legs. Um, but yeah, man, I just, I, I'm just so stoked to be doing this with you. And I think it's really fun to, to, to we're going to learn a lot together, brother. <laughs> Hell yeah. Likewise, brother. Well, thank you again so much for everything that you shared and for always, always since day one, your support of me. I love you, brother. Thank you. Love you too, man. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.